James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 73 in the midst of the scorcher that is this Texas. I saw a sign the other day, Mark. It said, Texas is so hot, it'll either uh, convince you to not go to hell or prepare you, prepare you to go there. <laughs> it, it, it is hot here. It's, uh, I was coming back today, and my car said it was 108 degrees on the road, and it's like, man, it's not even August yet. We're already 108. 108, yeah. Well, it's good stuff for me because I'm from Michigan. Nine months of winter was never, was never fun for me, so I don't ever complain about the heat. I love heat. It doesn't matter if it's desert heat, this kind of heat. I don't care. I don't care as long as it's hot, but it's episode 73 and Mark, you know, this, we got someone to do the all company email. I, I cannot believe he did it. Now, uh, he is the president. So I'm not quite sure who would He's fuss the it. president now. and the CEO, but still we got somebody to do the company wide email thing. And I mean, you know, this is awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. And it's, he, he, he doesn't run a small shop either. No. So a uh, big shout out to Howard D. Seeley, president and CEO at uh, Permian. Ooh, it's Permian lied. Permian lied. Permian yeah. lied. Yeah. Yeah. Permian yeah. lied. They are the um, the United States manu- the largest manufacturer of above above ground storage tanks. So yeah, and it's it's um you know we we've done it a couple times on the show as a joke like hey do the company wide you know email to everybody in the company and and recommend our podcast and he actually did it so um that was so cool that I'm actually going to send uh, Howard a really cool gift. Yeah, a really cool gift. You gotta you gotta do a little digging on that, but. He not only submitted, he not only did the all company email, he submitted a really great question for next month as well about uh, drilling, but uncompleted. I have ducks. I'm not, I, I've got to get my, uh, got to get my acronyms in order, but we'll, we'll cover that on the first Friday Q and A. And we've got a road trip coming up. What do yep. you have to say about road trips, Mark? I, I love road trips. And actually, let me give you a quick shout out. I did a road trip just last week and I was in uh, Mandeville, Louisiana. And I did a check-in on Facebook, and one of our listeners, uh, Caitlin Dibberville, uh, uh, pinged me immediately and said, hey, man, welcome to my part of town. Here's some restaurants I suggest, and I hope you have a great time. Now, how cool is that? Our listeners paying attention to where I check in or we check in, and then they give us recommendations, which, you know, you know hats off to her for, for reaching out to me. I really appreciate it. That's huge, and we want to do more of this, right? Yeah. So uh, if you, if your company, your trade association, uh, conference, schools, or even if you have a book club and you like James and you like James and I to come out and uh, speak or uh, do a podcast uh, from your venue, reach out to us. Um, We would love to make a road trip for you. um, And then, you know, holler at us if if this is something you're interested in and uh, we'll talk to you about the details. Yeah, we'll definitely talk to you about the details. You can get our contact information. In the show notes, the show notes on this episode is triprocket.com forward slash TW73. Let's get into the stories, Mark. I really love anytime anybody says ignores industry downturn, and this is very needed in Japan. So Japan progresses methane hydrate project ignores industry downturn from rig zone. Yeah, this is a very good article, and it, it's actually touched on something I learned a long time ago, and I haven't thought about it. But methylene hydrate is basically natural gas that has crystallized in water. And a long time ago, scientists thought it only existed in outer space, in the cold areas out of space, right? So uh, beyond Saturn. And they found it here on Earth. <laughs> in the right, uh, right types of uh, geology, um, um, methane hydrate will form. And methane hydrate is a good energy source. And there's a lot of parts of the ocean where you can actually reach the methane hydrate. Now, nobody's actually figured out a way to uh, commercially um, 
Gino, I don't know if you want to say you mine it or you drill it because it's a combination of both technologies. But nobody's figured out how to commercially harvest it yet. And, you know, the Japanese who have no um, uh, energy natural resources of their none, own. None. None. They either have to import stuff um, or they use nuclear. And because of what happened with um, um, their, their nuclear. Yeah, Fukushima in uh, 2011, they've decided to to back off on nuclear. So now they're having to import all of their energy products. And so this is a very detailed article talking about the different companies and even the government of Japan looking at, at, way, at looking at how, trying to figure out how we can commercially harvest methane hydrate. And they they've actually have a, a, a experimental well, the first well, dug. And so now they have to figure out things like how do you separate the water from the sand? How do you process methane hydrate? How do you move it? Um, but But it's a you know, it's a bunch of companies always uh, stake in this game, working together to try to, to get this developed. Now, the cool thing, James, is is if they pull this off, if they're able to figure out how to make um, methane hydrate a commercially viable energy source. You know, we talk about how there's oil and gas, natural gas forever. Mm-hmm. Now, now you've tapped into another energy source that is not measured. Right? This doesn't um, is not um, figured into the oil and uh, reserves that are out there. So now you have another just gigantic source of a fossil fuel energy that we can tap into. Wow. Yeah. And right now they're still paying, um, I'm looking at it right now, $6 and 25 cents per, um, what is it? Per, per BTU, I think, um, don't hold me. It's probably, it's probably billion cubic foot. Oh, actually it's USD MM BTU. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, but that, that's still substantially higher than what we're, what we're doing well, over here. So there's a flip side of this. So right now, LNG, uh, the prices are low, but they're coming back soon. And we have all these LNG plants here in the U.S. that are either in operation or being built to go to operation to convert our natural gas to LNG and then ship it to Asia Pacific. One of the prime markets is Japan. Because like you just said, it's six bucks per million uh, uh, billion cubic foot. And here in the U.S. right now, it's, what is it, $2? Per, per yeah, much yeah. less than that. I didn't look so it up. So look at that markup. Well, what happens if Japan kind of goes an end run and comes up with their own energy source and have, instead of having to buy our LNG? Then this could change the dynamics of the LNG market. So see, this, this is an interesting story to follow because this could this could be a fundamental ga- ground changer for the oil and gas industry. It, it could be another fossil fuel that somebody's figured out, some very smart people has figured out how they can utilize. So we've got 2016 methane hydrate showing up on Earth as well as Pokemon. Yeah. <laughs> and and not to get sidetracked, but did you see where somebody killed themselves doing the Pokemon Go thing? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people hurting themselves and doing dumb things, but Fulton and I are having a blast with it. He loves talking to me. He says, Mommy, Mommy, the Pokemon are on Earth. <laughs> yeah, so, in case any, cool. anybody doesn't know, that's uh, James's son. Yeah, that's my son, Fulton. Yeah. He's, he turns 5 August 30th. Pretty awesome. All right, moving over here to uh, to some UK news. UK prepares for decommissioning upstream. Yeah, so there's a lot involved in this story. Um, and, and if you nobody knows what decommissioning, decommissioning is when you go and you um, take old offshore structures, whether they're drilling rigs or production platforms or pipelines or whatever, and you take them offline, environmentally responsible, and you move them. Now, we do something really cool here in the Gulf of Mexico a lot of the structures that we decommission, we then turn into artificial reefs for the environment. It's called the Rigs of Reef Program. And um, um, we talk about it a little bit actually on the uh, Oil and Gas HSE podcast that uh, Patrick and I do. And the cool thing about that is not only is that um, helping the environment in a, in a wonderful way, it's actually increased the number of, of, of biomass. In, Cre- in the Gulf of Mexico, it's increased basically the number of fish and shrimp and uh, squid and sponges and everything because now they have a place for, uh, to have a home. 
Um, but then it also makes it easier uh, for the oil and gas companies to properly shut down a rig, right? Instead of having to bring it back. A few years ago, they they had a, a rig that they pulled down in the in the North Sea, and because of the environmental activists, they insisted on bringing it back to shore. And later, after doing the research, both the environmental activists and the oil and gas company said that was the worst thing they could have done for the environment is bring it back to shore. Um, so, um, so what's going on right now in the UK is the especially the North Sea. North Sea is a very mature uh, fields. There's a lot of um, production that's declining. There's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be taken offline and decommissioned. And just like here in the States and, and the UK and in the North Sea as a whole, there's rules to make sure when you decommission something, it's done environmentally responsibly. And so what's happening is um, this is coming at a time where that part of the industry is really hurting, right? The North Sea is is hurting more than you know a lot of other places that produce oil right now because the price of getting oil out of the ground is expensive there because of the environment, right? A huge waves, really cold, icebergs, all that sort of stuff. So now these companies have to start absorbing the cost of decommissioning. So it's not a good mix. However, all the companies that are involved in this had to put uh, financial structures in place that regardless of what the price of oil is, they have the money to decommission this infrastructure. So um, it's going to be interesting to see what Brexit, uh, how Brexit affects this. Um, I, I, I don't see it making a big difference other than they may figure out a way to help reduce the costs for the UK uh, energy companies um, that are having to do decommission. Yeah, so we'll have to keep following that one and see how this all works out. What is the timeline that they have going here? Is it just going to be ongoing because it's bureau- bureaucracy? Yeah, well, it's not bureaucracy. It's that once you have a project that makes commercial sense for you to shut down, then there's timelines on getting it, on having it decommissioned. But all the projects aren't going to come off a line at the same time. So this could be a staggered approach. And, it, it, and I say it like it's never happened before. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, here and in Africa and the Gulf and, you know, everywhere else is, um, you know, as, as um, projects get to the end of their useful life, they get, they get decommissioned. So this isn't anything new. It's just the fact of having to spend all this money to decommission stuff when you're not making any money. It's not a good place to be. Yeah, that's, and, that's yeah. rough. That's uh, rough. But I love, that, I love that image because you go out there, you get the oil, you get the prosperity for the nation, and then you leave that, you leave that rig there and it becomes habitation for the wildlife. It's awesome. Yeah, a lot of our listeners may not know this. My degree is in wildlife management. Long story, um, but I can tell you now that you know that a lot of parts of the ocean is almost like a desert to the wildlife. There's no structure there, and the and what happens is when they decommission, they have people that understand how to do this properly, cut these rigs up in the right size pieces, and lay them sideways in the right places in the ocean floor. And now instead of it being a desert, you now have a place for algae to start growing, and then sponges to start growing, and then coral to start growing then small fish to show up, and then larger fish. Pretty soon you have this whole um, uh, ecosystem built around this decommissioned rig, and it increases the number of, of living organisms in that part of the ocean. So it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, it's really good stuff. All right, let's come over to a uh, little regulatory talk uh, with a few different stories in the, on the home front, I should say. Despite industry pleas, Obama imposes costly Arctic drill rules. Yeah, can we just get to our next leader, please? I don't care which side. <laughs> so, 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 so the Arctic is challenging enough. Um, in this low crude price environment, nobody's going to go drill there. Shell, Shell went and tested it. Um, we have the right regulations in place, and the companies that want to operate there in the future know how to do it properly. There was no need to have another layer um, of legislation, but we now have it, which is going to basically increase the cost. So, so here's, here's a big thing. So if you're an operating company in the Arctic, and this is all fictitious, but this is what the rules would make you do. And you're drilling exploration well. 
And remember that that drilling rig is probably costing that um, operating company a million dollars a day. Probably a million dollars, probably a million, 1.6 million a day when you count the price of the drill rig and the cost of the crew to run it. Well, this law means that you have to have another identical rig sitting there on standby, not doing anything. What? Yep. Yep. So that in case they um, something happens, they can drill a, a relief well. That's ridiculous. That's that's what happens when you get people that don't understand the basic, you know, process of drilling a well, making rules. And so nobody's gonna be able to afford to do that. And then the flip side of that, James, is the Arctic, if you think about the top of the world, the Arctic is not U.S. territory. We touch a little bit of it because of Alaska. So let me ask you, just common sense. Do you think the Chinese and the Russians are going to make sure they have a separate rig sitting there on standby while they're drilling in the Arctic? No. Do you think they even have containment um, vessels sitting nearby while they drill in the Arctic? No, not at all, obviously. And you think, yeah, and if they have a leak, you think they're going to report it? No, well, no, no, it, it, they, they, yeah, I've seen, I've seen some Russian cover-ups in, in person. It, it gets yeah. a little crazy. So if we can't drill in Arctic, the Russians and the Chinese will. And I promise you, if you're uh, worried about the environment, you would rather have us in Europe drill there than Russian and Chinese. Nothing gets Russian and Chinese. I'm just, it's just a different culture. Um, you know, our operators take the environmental um, part of this industry extremely um, personally. They're measured on it. It's important to them. Um, they're the first one to raise their hands when they have an incident, right? They say, yes, we have a spill. Let's get it cleaned up. So this is just, just this is just, it didn't need to happen. And then in this long-term load crew price environment, why are our, why is our government spending time writing laws that we don't need to be written? Nobody's going to drill an Arctic right now at, you know, 45, 50, 60, $70 a barrel. Oil's going to have to be above $100 a barrel for an extended period of time for anybody even looks at the Arctic. So I would have rather have them spent their time, their money, um, coming up with a law that actually helps people now instead of hurting people in the future. All right. Well, let's move on from there to uh, Colorado. And in Colorado, we have a, another study, and this isn't going to be news to us or maybe several of our listeners, but anyone who is new, study methane in Colorado, water isn't always from oil wells. Yeah. You know, um, let's stop real quick. To all of our new listeners, um, welcome aboard. Uh, we love, we get new, you know, we get tons of new listeners every episode. So, um, you know, if this is the first time you listen to the show, I hope it's helpful to you. And, 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 you know, welcome to the family. Yes, welcome. Welcome. Let's get into the story. Yeah. So this is a story basically talking about how methane um, trickling into aquifers is natural. And it has been before man existed. It happened after we're gone. It'll still happen. A lot of it has to do with how close the aquifer and seams of coal run together. Methane's naturally in coal. There's all kinds of gases that are naturally in the aquifer. And the aquifer is what you drill into from the surface to get water, which is how you make a water well. And so, you know, there's studies showing that there's methane in, in water wells. Well, there's, there's, as far as I know, there's no studies showing that um, oil and gas drilling has caused methane to enter the aquifers. It's usually, it's almost always a natural cause. Now, one of the things they bring up here, which I'm actually really glad they did, and I wish I could draw this out for people, but I, I did this for a couple of years ago for some people. So when, when if, you, if you think of a slice of the earth, like your house is on top and there's ground and there's clay and there's rock and there's miles of rocks and there's water and there's oil and blah, blah, blah. If you think about that, the first, usually within the first 300 feet is where the groundwater is, where the aquifer is. So as you drill down, and as you know, when you, when you frack, you're drilling at least a mile down, if not two miles down. So five to 10,000 feet before you frack. So as you drill through that aquifer, you case it to protect it. Whether you're drilling a conventional well like they did in the 1970s and 80s and 90s, or you're drilling a frack well, that original horizontal um, cased part is exactly the same. Right. 
It's exactly the same. What happens a mile or two down below the rock is what's different. Well, one of the problems in this country and in other countries too is what 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 are all the casings that were cast iron that were done in the fifties in the sixties? And those wells are plugged, but the 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 casing is cast iron. It corrodes. The biggest threat to our water supply from the oil and gas industry is not what we're doing now because the casings we use now are layers of um, polyethylene cement. And everybody out there, thank me for not saying concrete because I know it's cement, uh, steel, multiple layers, so they'll, they'll last forever. The old casings that are cast iron don't. So the biggest threat is the old casing from wells that were drilled 30 or 40 or 50 years ago that the casing needs to be replaced. And they talk about this in this article about how there's some places where um, oil wells have contaminated uh, with methane aquifers, but it was wells that were drilled a long time ago and the casing failed. So something really, you know, if, if you're really worried about groundwater contamination, number one thing in the U.S. you should be looking at is as, um, agriculture, specifically pig farms and, and cow farms. They, they pr- Last year, they c- caused 617 cases of groundwater contamination. Fracking caused zero last year. But if you want to focus on the oil and gas industry, go back to the old wells, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, and start having those casings inspected and having them upgraded. Um, what we do now, we, we've got it down to science. What we do now, there's no threat. What is the process for that? Is there a process for that in the industry? I mean, I don't want to give regulators any ideas here. Well, it's what happens is that that most of those old wells that have been um, uh, decommissioned, been plugged, now belong back to the state. And there's rules and regulations in place with the original operators that he signed in the 70s about who has responsibility. What happens is that you basically go back and you pressure test it and you inspect it. And if there's a problem, you can now put modern polyurethane tubing. They make an actual product just to go in and make that old casing like new. So it, it's, it meets modern standards. Um, they also can cement the entire well that goes through the aquifer. Um, and, and, you know, once again, who... I don't want government regulation around that because the regulation always exists. Each state's a little bit different. Some states, the state has responsibility for doing that after it's turned back over to the state. Other states, the original operator has responsibility for doing that. So each state is different. But this is really important because I didn't put the article in here, but in November, there's plenty of opponents trying to get referendums on the ballot to stop all fracking in Colorado. Yeah, and it's um, we talked about this before. There's also the opposite happening where there's some really big companies like Anadarko who's figured out how to use social media <laughs> the same way that environmental activists have to to fight that. And and they they're they're winning. I'm not gonna say they're winning, but they've stopped the, the tide, and they're slowly get to point where they're gonna start pushing it back. Um, you know, uh, you know, you and I both are big believers in states' rights. If the state of Colorado wants, if the population of Colorado wants to do something and they vote on it in the democratic process, then that that's fine. I mean. We'll take the we'll take the money here in Texas in a heartbeat. <laughs> it's fine, but it's not. But not not if they're basing it off misinformation. So, folks out right. there in Colorado, um, do your job. Get on get on the stick. We gotta get ahead of that thing. Yeah, and actually, if you're if you're still, if you work in the industry in Colorado, you support or if you support our industry, don't be silent. The best way you can do is help is talk, speak facts, not opinions or emotional stuff, but let people know the truth. Let people know what this industry does. Most people have no idea. That the paint for their bicycle, that the um, blades for the windmills, you know, that the price of their Soles eggs. on their shoes. Yeah, the price of their eggs all depends on the abundant fuel supplied by the oil and gas industry. Yeah. Back from our brief break provided to you by Xfinity, Mark LaCour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listeners have no idea what we're talking about, but we had a major disruption. We had to start from all over again. Well, we, we started from 20, so let's, let's, let's get back into it. 
over with the Dallas News, the great crew change, lost generation of workers, leave few options for next oil boom. What the heck is going on? Yeah, so the uh, the layoffs from the upstream and the service companies have kind of um, made the great crew change uh, disappear from people's radar for a little bit, but it's still big, it's still huge, and it's actually getting worse. So what's happening is there's not enough skilled talent to run this industry uh, right now, even even this low crude prices. there. And what's going to happen is when the price of crude comes back, there's going to be a war for talent, and there's just none of people to fill those spaces. And it's interesting you brought this article up. I've had two conversations, two separate conversations in the last two weeks uh, with people, with companies that have asked me about this exact thing. And I think this is, um, you know, things like, um, uh, you know, it takes somebody like a geophysicist, right? There's not, there's not going to be enough of them. There's not enough of them right now. There's not enough people in school to fill the backlog. Well, how is an oil company going to work if they can't have hired geophysicists? I think it's going to be technology. I think you're going to see technology be forced to be adopted because there's not enough talent. But this is a good article showing how even in this downturn, oil, oil and gas companies realize that talent is everything now and in the future. And so even when they're making layoffs, they're being very selective in trying to keep their top talent because they know it's a competitive differentiator. And what's happening is, you know, really for a long time since the 80s, nobody has wanted to really get in this industry, except maybe if you went to school here in Texas. And so there's just not a big enough supply. And it's, you know, James, it's not just oil and gas. And we talked about this on the last show for the first Friday Q&A, where somebody asked about um, the major business drivers. And I gave them a, a slide from our own internal resource that even this low crude price if you ask, or we did, we did ask, you know, almost a thousand oil and gas middle management people globally, what are you worried about in the future, next five years? And it came back overwhelming talent. But it's also has to do with all of our technology industries. There's not enough people learning to code. There's not enough engineers. It's the whole reason I teach uh, science, technology, engineering, math, STEMs on Thursdays at my local high school, is that we recognize this for a long time. So I thought it was interesting. They talk about uh, generation. Like nobody in Generation X ever looked at oil and gas because it just looked like a lousy career path. And that's who I am, <laughs> Gen X. So there's at least one of me in this industry. Um, but you know, here's a good article showing a problem. And you know what? If you're a company out there that can address this problem, so if you're, let's say you're a technology company that can use technology to replace a person, here's a market opportunity for you. That's happening right now. And in the future, it's going to be huge. Well, I just looked it up and I still own greatcrewchange.com and .net. So might have to do something with that eventually. Yeah, so stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. All right, big oils. I hate when they say big oil because it's not us. Um, but regardless, big oils, $45 billion of new spending uh, or of new projects signal spending revival. Yeah, so um, this is to be expected. Um, they're talking about Chevron's um, um, uh, dumping um, $37 billion. $37 billion in the Kazakhstan. Yeah. Project um, a BP's doing a Mad Dog Phase Two. Uh, Any's uh, doing their Carl Project. So what's happening? I mean, this, this kind of makes sense, right? So these large, not just these large companies, but uh, almost all of the mid to large oil and gas companies have people on staff who's, who are very smart, whose job it is to look at the future and figure out what's going on, so they can make the right investments. So you know, I've been saying for a long time, I think the price of crude's can come back. Uh, evidently, Chevron and BP must listen to the show because obviously they, they think it's going to come back because that's where they're, they're dumping money into these projects. And what's going to happen, they're going to dump this money in the projects, and then in three or five or two or ten years, these projects come online, and that's where they're looking at the economics. They're looking to see if, at that point in history, when this project comes online, what do they think the price of crude is, and will this project be viable? So this is actually really good news uh, when you're seeing these large think tanks um, you know, ramp up their investment in, in these global projects. 
So shout out to John over on Facebook who asked uh, for a forecast on oil because it was going back to 45. Of course, I chimed in and told him that I don't really pay attention to oil prices and they're not really viable or very important to my success or my business. But I did tell him that you're a little more qualified to give a forecast. So what is the update on that? Um, I'm still I'm still sticking sticking to fifty five sixty dollars a barrel by the end of August. Um, it's going to be close. If I if I miss it, it's only going to be by a month or two. Um, and but I'm I'm, I'm my stakes in the ground. Uh, we did this. We did the math. Uh, shoot, was it eighteen months ago? Two years ago for this forecast. And um, I you know I I still think we will get there. The oversupply is dwindling, and and as soon as it gets to a certain number, the price will go right back up. So one of these things in the article, it mentions BP has knocked more than half the cost of the Mad Dog Phase 2 project. It was $20 billion four years ago, and now it's at $9 billion. Where is that savings coming from? So a lot of it's coming from the service companies. So if you're a service company, and we, we talked about this years ago, you know, four years ago, there was inflation going on in the service company. There wasn't enough parts and pieces and pumps and motors, so the service companies were just going up on their rates left and right. Well, now we're in an opposite situation where they're desperate for work, so they're going down in their rates. They're willing to reduce their margin to have some cash flow. You have that going on. And then also, you know, the the day rates for the big high-horsepower new drill ships have been cut dramatically, once again, because there's an oversupply. You know, four or five years ago, there wasn't enough of them out there, and the day rates were, were crazy. A, a modern, you know, ultra-deep-water drill ship in the Gulf of Mexico back then was going for a million dollars a day. You probably get one of those right now for, say, half of that. So that's where it, so these cost savings are coming. And then quite honestly, BP itself, had to go back and look at its project management, its portfolio management, and drive costs, drive inefficiencies out of the way they do a project. So it's it's the combination of those three. Got it. Let's move downstream. Kinder Morgan's tall cotton CO2 project ushering in a new era of oil recovery in the Permian Basin. I'm fired up to hear you talk about this. So this is a great find. Um, if people don't know, there's a bunch of different ways you can stimulate or, or make it basically easier to get oil out of the ground. Uh, you can inject seawater, you can inject steam, and one of the ways you can, uh, and you can frack, but one of the ways is you can inject CO2. And the CO2 injection basically just adds energy to the oil, so then it flows out easier. And this is a, a pilot program by Kinder Morgan. A lot of people know Kinder Morgan's a midstream company, right? They're a pipeline company, but they have different business units, and one of them is their CO2 business unit. And when they formed it, which was years ago, I was like, what are they doing? Are they going to use this to like, you know, power soft drink machines? <laughs> I, I just couldn't figure out, I couldn't figure out why they had a CO2 business unit. Well, Kinder Morgan had, must have some really smart people because this shows you why they formed that business unit all those years ago. CO2 injection is a way to, to do a well stimulation. And so what Kinder's doing is they're coming in um, to a very unique uh, piece of geology and they're building the complex to use CO2 jacks and see if they can viably get oil out of the ground and and what basically what they're doing is they're punching a hole in the ground and that's going to be the co injection site and then they're, they're staggering five wells around that centered co2 injection to, to retrieve oil and they're going to make this a, a almost like a factory process where they go in, uh, one co2 five wells one co2 five wells and they're going to move on and on through this this um this piece of geology so it's gonna be real interesting to see because if they pull this off if it makes money for them especially in this low crude price environment Here's another technology, another well stimulation technology like fracking that somebody has invented to help get oil out of the ground very economically. And, and that's just great for everybody. I love the way you said that it adds energy to the oil. That's just really fascinating to think about the, uh, the physics going on there. Yeah, it's uh, the, the physics and the chemistry it, it's, uh, it, it's actually very interesting stuff. Flow dynamics, 
Um, and you know, the people that do this for a living way smarter than I am around this, but that's basically what it does. It just adds energy to the oil. That's really cool. So what is our timeline looking like for, for being able to follow up on this story? Um, they're, they're just in the trial phases. Um, they're actually in production, but they're nowhere near fully ramped. Uh, I think they, uh, but at their first well in 2014. So probably um, end of 2016 or so, we should have a better idea of what this things could do. It's interesting. They have a map here. It says Mother Nature's Water Flood. Yeah. And so if you want to get into the geology of this, basically the 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 water has moved these hydrocarbons into, into areas that they would naturally would be caught in. So think about if you look at a stream and there's an eddy and the leaves get caught in that eddy. So this is going on in the same type of thing underground where the oil gets caught in these curves and there's embankments in the geology that's moved by this water. And so then the oil builds up. And so that's what Kinder's going after. So then what, what exactly you said they were, they're geniuses, of course, for thinking of this such a long time ago, but what is the, what is the, the, what's the benefit to them being a midstream company discovering new technology upstream, just proliferating it and filling their pipelines? No, 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 no. If you're an upstream company and you use this process to get oil out of the ground, how do you move it? That's what I was saying. Yeah, you're going to go to Kinder Morgan, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, from a business point of view, it's genius, right? It would be... Um, it like would, the ultimate content marketing. I mean, like, but yeah, like way ahead, way ahead, way ahead, thinking way far ahead. Yeah. Wow, wow, that's genius. Yeah, it, it just embed yourself. Let's, let's invent something to embed ourselves into the workflow and the culture of every company that needs us. Yeah. That's and and brilliant. and like I said, think of how the well stimulation technique of um, hydraulic fracking has changed this industry. Here's another new technology. It's not new. A CO two injection has been experimented for a while, but if they figured this out, here's another new process um, to do well stimulation. All right, another story from Seeking Alpha. If you must bet on refiners, then look for safety and yield. Do you like this one or hate it? I like it. I, I wish I, I do wish, and this is just me because I'm so into this, but I, I do wish they would differentiate between fuel refineries and petrochemicals. Because when you say refineries, that covers it all. This is an article about fuel refineries. Um, and they're talking about there's fears of oversupply, which is true. There's gonna be an oversupply of diesel for, globally for the next couple. I have no idea where it's, the price of diesel is going to bottom out crazy. Um, you're, you're also, people are actually, are, our fleets are getting more fuel efficient and people are actually driving less, which then can lead to oversupply of gasoline here in the U.S. Um, and so it's basically, this is an investment article going through about which refiners have the best crack spread. And we've talked about that before. That sounds like something that, you know, you'd find in an outback alley for 20 bucks a rock. But crack spread is actually the difference between the spot price and the sell price right now. So basically the difference between what you pay for the raw feedstock and what you can actually sell it for. And it changes on a literally a minute by minute basis. And so they talked about some good companies. They talked about uh, Valero and they talked about um, uh, Western Refinery, both solid companies. They talk about ExxonMobil. I uh, talk about uh, PBF Energy. Um, I actually know the CIO at PBF Energy, great guy. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking to invest in refineries, read this. From an investment point of view, I agree with almost everything in here. Um, but once again, they're talking about fuel refineries, which are in a different world than the petrochemical side of the house. You talk about oversupply. I didn't throw it in the show notes, but I did see a story on the fact that there was scares of a helium shortage going on. And there was a major discovery made that's going to take care of that. But no balloons, man. Yeah, No, I read that too, James, somewhere. And I can't remember what what company it was they found a huge supply of helium i mean it's like i'll look it know. up i'll look it up so that i can put it in the extras in the show notes okay yeah yeah <laughs> it's just 
really funny how the things you come across looking for these stories. All right, nation's loneliest natural gas terminal bucks pipeline trend. I love this story. Um, th- this just shows you how what how ex um, the way people think about stuff can change the the actual business to the point that it's funny. <laughs> so this is about the state of New England, and it's about a, a pipeline company, um, and it's about an import terminal. And you go import? Well, we haven't had to import stuff in a long time. Here's the thing: in New England, they don't want to build new pipelines to to bring in all the cheap frac oil and gas because it's not they don't think it's environmentally responsible. So you know what they do instead, James? Tell me. They're importing LNG from the Caribbean. <laughs> oh, come on now. They're importing LNG from the Caribbean. <laughs> and these LNG tankers are coming in to this terminal. And then this pipeline company is benefiting because then it transported all this LNG throughout New England. And you want to go, hey, turn around, see the rest of the U.S.? We have gas everywhere. Why are you paying five times more to import gas from the Caribbean? And New England would say, because we don't want to destroy the planet. So, I, you know, this is just, this is just ridiculously, it, this is actually so funny. My, my eyes are watering up just thinking about this. <laughs> they, they literally have frack gas at five times less the price, just, you know, a hundred miles away. And, but no, they don't want it. So, you know what, New England, I, I, you know, the Caribbean thanks you for this. The Caribbean appreciates the way you're thinking about being environmentally responsible. Um, the rest of the sure those tankers are super responsible yeah, too. Yeah, super, yeah, they actually talk about that. That the company that has these tankers, these tankers used to go all over the world to make money. Now they just run right back and forth between New England and Caribbean. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, you know, so um anyway, um, you know, hats off to, to to New England for paying more and actually harming the environment just because they think they're helping it. Because I tell you what, that super tanker. Um, burns d- doesn't even burn diesel. It burns fuel oil, which is one of the most polluting things in the world. And there's no catalytic converter. Or was, so that exhaust goes straight into the ocean. Well, this is another uh, opportunity for us to get out of the country and get down to the Caribbean and check this thing out. We got to get on this, Mark. No, no, no. Let me tell you. Do you, you think the the people in the Caribbean that are doing this want this to be public knowledge? No, no. They, they don't want us to. They don't want us to advertise this at all. No, no. I I can't imagine the residents of New England once they knew what was going on would be that happy either. But well, I, don't, I don't know how many people in New England listen to the show. Let us know. Yeah, well, so the problem is, 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 do they know the reality of it? That, that's the difference. There's, there's this public perception and there's the reality. And, and their, their perception is one thing. It's just not aligned with reality. Yeah, so just to put some numbers to reality, gas for delivery next January via Spectra's New England network currently costs $8.46 million. Uh, per million BTU. We just talked about Japan at six six and a quarter compared with three dollars and sixteen cents for Pennsylvania shale. Oh my gosh, Mark. Yeah. So let me tell you, Chenier right here in the Gulf Coast, the big LNG uh, uh, exporting facility that's flared up. Uh, Chenier should go sell their LNG to New England. Oh, they would make out at eight bucks. You know how much money? Because right now LNG is going for about six. We so got to get a finder's fee on that. <laughs> they could make more money selling to the silly state of New England than to the rest of the world right oh now. Oh my goodness, that's oh man! All right, another story uh, that's uh, that's kind of uh, on the upbeat here. Oil slump got you down. The light at the end of the tunnel just might be Profoam truck. Yeah, this is a great article. Profoam is is a corporation. I think it's a franchise, but anyway, um, they they basically do something called sp- spray polyurethane foam, which is. Um, been used for years in big industrial buildings for insulation and then lately in houses because it's even better than fiberglass. And they actually usually combine that with fiberglass. But this article is about how there's a, this industry is growing. And the interesting thing that they don't cover in this article, 
Um, do you know where polyurethane, polyurethane foam comes from? The oil and gas industry, most it likely. Comes, yep, and, and it's a waste product. Okay, for a waste of what? What, uh, um, what process? I can't remember. It's one of the processes in downstream that they go to make something. It might be, um, might be an alcohol, a benzene or something. Anyway, and this, the polyurethane is a waste product. It's literally almost free. And somebody figured out um, that you could actually use it for stuff as they start selling it. But it's, it's, it's literally a waste product of a more profitable process in downstream. If uh, anybody knows what that process is that's listened, let us know because I, I can't remember exactly what that process is. But anyway, this is a story about how this stuff's taken off because it's, you can spray it on anything and insulate it. So even back in the oil and gas industry, all the storage tanks and valves and stuff that need to be insulated, these Proform uh, trucks go out and they spray this polyurethane foam on it to insulate all the parts and pieces. Um, and then it's also used in residential, um, you know, so this is an article about the business of this company, um, Proform, and they're actually talking about the, to this guy that works offshore and he started one of these franchises himself, even though he's still working offshore and think about that. He said now he has dual income and all of it's tied to the oil and gas industry, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I've got a, I've got an article here. I can't find the exact, uh, kind of soundbite, but I'll throw that in the show notes as well. Um, foam rubber, how it's made. So. Yeah, and foam rubber comes from polyurethane as well. It all it, the process is different, but it all comes from the same place. All right, good stuff. All right, moving on to the weekly onion. We had we had um, Tim Duncan retire this week in extraordinary fashion. Um, not really, just typical Tim Tim Duncan fashion. So the weekly onion actually has a roundup of twenty one stories that they've written about Tim Duncan, and, and the headline is an NBA legend rides into the sunset at a safe and prudent speed. <laughs> a couple of my favorites. Tim Duncan offers due taxes for entire Spurs team, and Tim Duncan hands it up for crowd by arching left eyebrows slightly. <laughs> so uh, get those in the show notes as well. And moving on from there, Bulwark has another winner, Mark. We just yeah. tried to not butcher it, but we did it again. So uh, let, let's do it right this time. Yeah, so congratulations, Matt. Matt Lehman, uh, GIS analyst at Noble Energy. You have won the Bulwark Long Sleeve FR two-tone base layer. Two-tone base layer. Tell us about uh, Bulwark. So Bulwark is the number one brand of flame-resistant apparel, FR apparel. And let me tell you something that a lot of people may not know that's so great about Bulwark. Not only do they offer FR apparel, they do educations abroad. They do education programs, not just here in the U.S., but all over the world. So if you want to teach your people the right way to use FR, the right way to apply it, the right way to clean it, how FR is, is made, give them a buzz. They will bring in their experts and, and put together an education program for you and your whole team to make sure your people go safe. You make sure your people use an FR uh, products safely. Um, and like I said, you know, 45 years of experience, number one brand of FR resistant, uh, uh, FR apparel uh, in the oil and gas industry. Great company. Um, we have a personal relationship with them. So, you know, congratulations, Matt, for winning this. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of science going behind your two-tone base layer, and we hope you uh, enjoy it. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And if you want a chance to win one of your, o's, one of your own, go to bulwark.com forward slash podcast, dot com forward slash podcast. Uh, only in the early stages there. We'll see if, we, if, if we're going to get the black market going on that. All right. <laughs> Yeah, and if you don't know what James is talking about, we, we've had other sponsors where their giveaways became a black market item. It's crazy. But, it, but you know, it goes to show the passion of our audience. So, um, you know, Matt, you, you have something that's rare. Only, we've only given a couple of them out, so hang on to it. Hang on to it. All right. And then send us a picture when you get it. Events on deck. If you want to get Mark's monthly events email, which I highly recommend, go to com forward slash events, and you can get everything 
that we talk about. You send this event out as a as a one off uh, this week, actually, Mark. So tell us about it. Yeah, so this event's going on next week. This is um, cloud adaptation for oil and gas. What you need to know. It's Thursday, June twenty first, and it's free for our listeners. You have to go sign up. And this is put on by a, a couple of companies you may have heard of: Intel, <laughs> AWS, uh, Cloud Symposium, and Cloud Technology Partners (CTP). And let me tell you what's important about this: this is not an IT event. Everybody in this industry that's in the business side needs to understand how cloud um, can help your business. Uh, in this low crude prices, uh, using cloud properly can reduce your costs. Uh, when the price of crude comes back, or if you're lucky enough to be in uh, the petrochemical side of the house, who's rocking and rolling, cloud can uh, lead to more uptime. So. This industry is changing. This industry is adopting technology. Cloud is one of the, the things the industry is adopting, and you need to understand it, not from an IT point of view, from a business point of view. So if you're in oil and gas and you, and you want to understand more about cloud, go check this out. Like I said, it's free for our listeners. We'll go, uh, James, I have a link in the show notes, and it's uh, next Thursday, the 21st. James and I have been invited. We haven't talked yet off the mic if we're going to go or not, so we don't know if we're going to be there. But we're going to try to make it. Yeah, we're definitely going to try to make it at the Hotel Sorella in the city center. And uh, first Friday Q&A questions just keep rolling in, and they're fantastic, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I, some awesome questions, some that I probably would struggle to answer. And it's interesting, James, it's, um, we've gotten a lot of questions from some very senior people out there, um, and it feels good, right? So if we can help you, if you're, you know, if you're right out of college, this is your first job, shoot, if you're still in college and you have questions, let us know. Or like I said, if, if you're a senior person and you're looking for stuff that's more strategic, you know, reach out to us. If, if we can help you, we'll love it. If we answer your question on the air, we'll give you a big shout out as well. Definitely trybrocket.com forward slash QA to submit via writing or click the orange button if you're on a desktop or laptop and submit a voicemail. In review news, we have 104 ratings and we've made it up to 95 reviews, Mark. So we're only five away. Let's back up real quick. The other thing you can do is take your smartphone, plug your headphones in, and uh, record a voice memo and send it to James. He loves that just as much as you click an orange button on his website. Definitely. James at trybrocket.com. All right, so we've got 95 reviews. I'm hoping we can get to 100, but let me uh, get the one out of the way that we got from the last week. MBA student, five stars by Dalton DeWine. And he says, as a student looking to start a career in oil and gas upon graduation, this podcast is a great tool to keep up with the latest happenings in the industry. The content is extremely relative and entertaining, and I look forward to future episodes. Well, we got a lot of future episodes coming. Super excited about that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Dalton. And Dalton, you may want to check out an oil and gas careers podcast since you're just getting ready to graduate. That might be useful to you as well. Yeah, even if uh, even if some of the shows are they're expired as far as the postings, the content, just learning about all of the different positions, what those people do, and so forth. Good stuff. And learning how to apply, right? What's the best way to use your time? Um, yeah, go check it out. Yeah, go check it out. And um, again, we've said it a couple of times, but if you want to get into any of the stories that we talked about today or leave a comment, question, anything like that, you can go to the show notes at trybrocket.com for this episode, forward slash TW73. And we we got our all-company email. We'll see how many more of those we can get, Mark. Yeah, so uh, if you want a special present from me, um, and it's going to be something oil and gas related, um, send a company-wide email saying, hey, you need to check out this podcast with a link to our podcast, and then take a picture of it and send it to us. Yeah, um, we've, had, we've had one person do it, so come on, let's see who's brave enough to do it the second time. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And if you, if you aren't going uh, to take us up on that, you can, you can definitely share it um, with, uh, with, with, with no repercussions on social media by going to trybrocket.com forward slash share LI. I'll take you to LinkedIn forward slash share TW for Twitter and forward slash share FB. 
or Facebook. I think we covered everything. Mark, are you ready to go? Yeah. So folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. watched a documentary about Porky Pig the other day. I guess that's me.